Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday Celebration from the Center for Spiritual Living in Huntsville, Alabama. We hope you feel the grace, the beauty, and the love of our community as you hear the message of the week. Many blessings to you. So we allow that music to take us into that place within ourselves where we feel the sacredness of this time of year. Otanenban, singing to the trees, how sacred they are, the connection between heaven and earth. And if you're a little girl in Germany like Gigi was, they had candles on the trees, she told me. And so now today we look, get to look at our trees and they have the twinkle lights. And be they candles or twinkle lights, we recognize that there is a light. We could call it an external light. And then there's an internal light. And they're not separate. And so when we do namaste, it says, the God in me bows to the God in you. What if we could take that into the luminosity realm and say, the light within me bows to the light within you. And in that place, there's only the one light, God's light. And so we come here on this holiday time to re, mm, reframe how we enter into life, not from the dysfunctional egoic self that may be struggling with effect and with internal turmoil, but from what Emerson calls that infinite presence that lies stretched in smiling repose. And at age 74, I've recognized that our one challenge and opportunity and responsibility is to awaken to our true nature, which is the Buddha consciousness, that one who is awake as awareness itself, no longer bound by the tyranny of thought. Our destiny is to evolve into the universal Christ, huh. which is the second coming, but must come within the collective, not within an individual. And so we offer ourselves as mm, a cell in the body of God, a body that is awakening to its potential and possibility and responsibility here on planet Earth, no longer as a bystander, but as a spiritual activist, ready to embrace the truth as best we know it, to allow that expression to be one of inclusivity, one of welcoming, one of mm, diversity, knowing that God loves diversity. Look all around you. Nowhere does God make anything like anything else. Every snowflake is unique. And so as we enter into this consciousness of diversity and the sanctity of life itself, we say, yes, this is the life the Lord has made and I rejoice and am glad in it, in all its many, many twists and turns. So when you're ready to play in the playground of the unmanifest, I invite you to open your eyes to be here now and to notice who showed up this morning. 
to make a commitment to something that is greater than mm, the local self. I, I, I find it this, uh, I'm almost 34 years into my ministry and um, it seems to get more meaningful and relevant with every passing day. It's like there's not a place where you graduate and you've arrived and you have all the answers. Rather, when you graduate from ministerial school, it's the opening. It's like being in a long-term relationship. My husband and I just had 47 years of marriage. And um, I went into the basement, into all those boxes that you accumulate after 50 years together. And I found the old photograph album when he and I took our first date to Atlantic City in 1974. And I'm looking at the face of the man that I fell in love with. Well, no, I really couldn't stand him back in 1974. It took till 1975, December 16th, before I was willing to make a commitment. But I got to see the evolution of our relationship and how through time and through the willingness to make a deep commitment to dig a deep well, and that's relevant to everything. When I was a young spiritual seeker, and I studied with the Buddhists, they have a thing called spiritual materialism, where you do a little of this, or you do a little of that, you do a little of this, and what you fail to do is to dig the one deep well that connects you to who you really are. The same is true in a personal relationship. I mean, I was a young gay man in New York City, and I had many, many boyfriends, but not one committed relationship, because I was convinced that commitment didn't work after the first one failed. Well, I had to reframe the way I saw that and say, could I be willing to trust in another human being? And it's so funny when we finally did codify the marriage. Well, it wasn't codified six years ago when we got our uh, marriage license and Mrs. Goosby married us. Trey thought you'd pay 50 bucks and you're married. No, no, she says, you have to do, you have to get married. What? And so she says, stand in front of him. And he looked and he said, look into his eyes. And he couldn't look. And, and then she said, say with me, Okay, this is my husband. I, John Stoddard. I, John Stoddard. The third, the first two were homophobes. The third. Forsaking all others. Forsaking all others. Choose you as my partner. That was it. And he said, that was it? She said, yeah, pay me the money. She signed the deed. You can go out and have your lunch. And that's what it took. All that faldy roll Just to have that. And so on Friday, when we had our 47th uh, anniversary, we went to Bonefish for lunch and they hadn't seen us in maybe a decade. And they said, oh, we haven't seen you in forever. And I said, yeah, we came to celebrate our anniversary and I'm not afraid to say it anymore. And so the waitress that we'd had, she's now an old lady. She came over, her name is Gay, coincidentally. I said, hi, Gay. And I said, she said, I haven't seen you guys in forever. I says, well, we're celebrating our, our uh, anniversary. And she said, and you're legal now, aren't you? I said, well, for now. But we'll just take it for now. We feel that we can be visible and open. And it just shows you we can evolve as a species. There is a, there's a statement in religious science that kept waking me up all night long. And that statement from Ernest Holmes is says, principle is not bound by precedent. Now the precedent has been the Defense of Marriage Act. Only one man and one woman could be the da-da. And so that's the precedent. Well, they overturned it because they recognize that love is love, no matter who you love. And so for some strange quirk of fate, we're changing the paradigm here on planet Earth. Now my beloved Parker Palmer, he speaks to my soul. He's a bit older than I am, he's 80 years old. And at the end of his life, he wrote this book called On the Brink of Everything. And he says at whatever age, wherever we find ourselves, we're on the brink of everything. If you're a child, if you're an octogenarian, 
you're on the brink of everything. And so he shares his, his story here and um, how we have to be willing to stand up to the ignorance. And, and this week he's talking about um, reaching out, always reaching out in this world to create bridges of understanding. And then he talks about reaching in to the source of your being. And so he talks about reaching out, and this is what it, it means to him. This is for you, Mary. Uh, well, I thought it was meaning for him. He said, a spiritual journey is an endless process of engaging life just as it is, stepping away from our illusions about ourselves and our world and the relationships of the two and moving closer to the reality as we do. My Zen calendar was Alan Watts this morning, Gene, and it said, faith. Faith is, the ability, faith is the ability to embrace the truth when it reveals itself in your heretofore illusory life. We get trapped in the illusion of how we thought it was supposed to be, and the truth sets us free. But my teacher said, first it pisses you off. Well, you can figure that one out on your own. The process begins with losing the illusion that spirituality will float you above your daily fray. Reality may be hard, but it's a safer place to live than our illusions. So, which always fail us and at no point is that more true than in old age he said death is after all the end of our illusions so why not do what we can do now to lose the illusions before death's hard uh, reality will come home to you and so as i say that let's hold judy graf and hank in our hearts this sunday morning he fell down the stairs on thursday night he is all banged up he's in uh Crestwood Hospital, she's spending the time with him. This morning she texted me as she went home to get a change of underwear. She said it wasn't even half an hour. They think he might've had a heart attack. And so she's having to make those decisions that the spouse does when the partner is in a compromised position. And let's just know that divine love, and I said this to Judy, she said, your phone call meant so much to me at 6 a.m. Because I said, you know, Judy, I, I say this in all my wedding ceremonies, that divine love brings together and maintains together those who belong together. And divine love brought Judy and Hank together all those many, many years ago. And she has took, taken care of her mother, now she's taking care of Hank. And she says, and you know what? He took care of me too, even in his compromised position. So what if we could see the sacredness of this relationship and that we're all a part of this family of oneness? And you know, the one thing about relationships I do know after 47 years, let go of the expectation of your partner and let them be who they are meant to be. Because if you have an expectation and an attachment to what it's supposed to look like, it's a recipe for, for disaster. We have to celebrate the emergence of their soul. So Parker Palmer, in this wonderful book that upsets me, but also inspires me, he talked about, um, he wrote this book in 19, or 2017, right after we had the election, when Donald Trump was elected. and. Um, he had an issue with somebody who was so closely aligned to white supremacy. This is Parker Palmer. And he said, I am one angry Quaker. This is Parker mm -hmm. Palmer. And so he asked, how can we be, um, what did he call us, patriots? A patriot is someone who stands up to the ignorance and calls it out for what it is and has the courage to do so, even if it's met with resistance. And so he closes his book with kind of a desperate attempt, how can I cope now in 2018 when this crazy stuff is going on the planet? And so he, this is how he responded, and we're gonna go from him. He said, I find sacred space to try to create sacred space in everything, even in the darkest times. And then I retreat from the world, but I'm not really retreating from the world, I'm retreating into myself where I can find 
the resources that I need. And so as he talks about reaching out and having the dialogue and then reaching in, I had this epiphany that Thomas Merton reached out to Parker Palmer and a year after he'd made this transition. And Parker Palmer, he pays huge tribute to Thomas Merton's wisdom as something that is still alive within him. Now, Thomas Merton never reached out to me, but Ralph Waldo Emerson did. And we just finished our lovely little class, Living from the Soul, and I realized that that was just the beginning. This is my class for January, because this is where you go into the deep. We got the surface. So the whole book that we just taught, Living from the Soul, was based on one journal entry, Seamus, that Emerson did when he traveled from Boston over to Europe. He, he started a journal in 1831, and he, um, his wife had just died, and he had this experience that um, his religion let him down. Remember, he was, the, he was the minister at the first church in Boston, a very prestigious position. He graduated from Harvard Divinity School. He was third generation preacher. And then he found the writings of Copernicus, Anastasia, and he went, holy, I'm not gonna say the word, but you know what I mean. He said, my whole life is a sham. I've been teaching a lie. And I want to give it to you in Emerson's own words. For Emerson, scientific knowledge made conventional religious beliefs impossible. Copernicus's astronomy has rendered our theological scheme of redemption absolutely unbelievable, says Emerson in 1831. He said he wrote in his journal just six weeks before resigning the ministry in 1832, the Christian authorities of Emerson time taught that the universe was created over the course of six days, and on the seventh day, the Lord, which would be, we would have been existing for 6,000 years. Now we know that the universe is 5 billion years old in 2022. In 1831, he's beginning to awaken from the illusion that I'm teaching a lie. He said, um, the scheme of redemption and referenced by Emerson began with the Garden of Eden, with the fall of an Adam and Eve, whose sins brought death upon the world and culminated the incarnation of God in his son, Jesus Christ, who would bring salvation to humanity through his death and resurrection. He realized this was all a sham. This can't support my own growth experience. So he had to let go of that and it launched him into a quest for truth that began to flower in ways that are truly um, grace-filled. And so I'm going to explore the, the, the context in which the content emerges. Now, context is very important. That's the zeitgeist, what's going on at the time. Now, think about it. We're in 2022 with all the crazies that are going on with our democracy. He's in 1831, and he's got the same issues going, but even worse. In 1831, women were considered chattel. They had no rights whatsoever, not even to speak their truth. He became a strong advocate for women's rights, and he said that they're superior to us men. He says they have depth where we have a lot of bravado. You should read what he says about women. And then he took on slavery, and he says any Christian who has a slave is out of principle. And he said, we live by divine principles, and if the president is to say, we will support slave owners because that's the president, he says no human being in their right mind would do that. And then he goes back to a deeper realization. He said, our country, and he said it's called um, a higher order of being, wants to be a constant evolution in our country, 
based on the idea that all are created equal. Now, when they said all men are created equal in the Declaration of Independence, what it really was saying was all white men who own property are created equal. Anybody else, you're not created equal. So here he's standing for principle, which is what Parker Palmer says we need to do by reaching out and reaching into the truth of our being. So he takes on evolution, he leaves the church, and he's in 1831 and he's on a little boat going over to England. And so he reaches out to the mystics of the time, which was William Wordsworth, the poet, poetry mystics, Thomas Carlyle, William Butler Yeats. And so he starts having communion with like-minded souls that are setting him on fire with a truth that begins to awaken from within his soul. So when he came back in 1832, he had to heal his heart because Ellen had died. And so he found a nice, respectable older woman. He married an older woman who was a, a woman of means she, so she could support her husband who didn't have a job. Anybody can resemble that idea? And so he married Lydian and he had three children by her. In fact, the second child, the daughter, on her desire, will name her Ellen after the first one that you loved. And so she knew that she was playing second fiddle to the dream girl, but she didn't care because she knew she was a part of something bigger. So as Emerson healed his heart and had his children, in five years' time, he was asked to come back to Harvard and give what they call the American Scholar Address. Well, he really upset everybody because he talked about to be an original thinker of, you know, Behold, when the universe unleashes an original thinker, someone who dares to. And so the American scholar really shook the whole world in 1837. By 1838, they invited him back and he gave the Harvard Divinity School address. Well, it got him in more trouble. He said, let go of your God of the intellect and your God of tradition and let your soul be set on fire with all those. Well, by then they called him a damn pantheist, Raoul. And um, he was more controversial than anybody. But you know what he'd done? He'd lit a fire and he was lighting the fire of truth so that it could awaken. So his first book, and truly one of my favorites, is a little book called Nature. And he awoke in nature, Anastasia. He did that thing that you're talking about, going into nature and nature awoke him. He said, nature is a mute gospel. He said, and it's not separate from us. And he had this epiphany at the uh, Museum of Natural History in Paris, France, where he said, I am one with the cicadas and I am one with the, the, the roaches and I am one with the, the, the monkeys in the cage. Uh, he's, he realized that this oneness began to awaken within him. And so he came back teaching a whole different spirituality that the world wasn't ready for, but a young man at age 30 was ready for. And so when I found Emerson, I find my soul. I think he's reaching out to me at this stage of life saying, we have to find a skilled way to speak to something that is out of principle. And he says, and you know, and that, that's that whole thing, uh, principle is not bound by precedent. We don't have the principle of the Defense of Marriage Act anymore. We, we, that's the president, been forever. So gives a taste of Emerson, he says, what's the use of an admirable form of government? This is in 1830 something. If political parties and moneyed interests control the government, what's the use of our judicial system if judges only quote precedents and ignore principles that want to emerge? What's the use of a Supreme Court if it's swayed by the political winds of the hour? He's doing this in the 1830s. He says, the crisis shows the self-perpetuating nature of the world's political and economic systems. Power and prosperity will always resist reform. He was a reformist. And you know who he ignited with his strange way of thinking was his, um, 
his muse and his mentor, Henry David Thoreau, a much younger man who lived with him and his wife. He was the handyman that took care of all the chores. He was also a Harvard student. Thoreau was like his uh, disciple. He told Thoreau, start journaling. Thoreau was the one that built Walden, the cabin on Walden Pond. And uh, Thoreau was his muse because he saw in him the self-realized individual. Whereas Emerson was the erudite philosopher and prophet, Thoreau was the one walking the talk. And so Thoreau wrote a little book called Civil Disobedience. And the reason he wrote that book was he was told that he, he refused to pay taxes uh, in Concord, Massachusetts, because they were still supporting policies in the government that he didn't agree with. And so if you didn't pay your taxes in Concord, Massachusetts, they threw you in jail. And so while in jail, Thoreau, who, and Emerson said, I'll pay your taxes. No, no. He said, this is the principle of the thing. I'm not going to be paying for a government who supports slavery. So Thoreau's in jail. He writes civil disobedience, which then becomes the Bible for Gandhi and for Martin Luther King, because he talked about peaceful revolution. So here, by daring to have integrity within himself, someone like Thoreau is responsible for freedom all over the planet. And he didn't even know, by writing that little book on civil disobedience, how he was impacting people. See how we contagion one another? So Emerson said, I would have thought it impossible for a Christian to own slaves. And he says, and yet Christians do own slaves. Haven't they read their Bibles? Not only have they read their Bibles, they quote Jesus and Paul to justify slavery. I mean, he was one pissed off little Christian here. And you have an angry, um, what is he? Quaker. He says, teachings can only be understood on the level of which they're given. So interpret the words of Jesus or Paul as a person must put on the mind of Jesus or Paul. And then he was talking to that higher realization. Jesus's message was to love one another, to not judge, to know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, to forgive. 70 times seven so we can be free. So he says, we don't listen to what the messenger was telling, we've worshiped the messenger. So throughout this book, he's taking on the institutions in a way that um, I find delicious in order to liberate the soul. And this is my favorite. He says, genius, and we are all a genius. And he says, each one is a genius, your talent is the call. So could we raise our children and our spouses and the other to find whatever that genius is, which is the soul's expression? It's not the egoic self that's supposed to make this mark in the world. And you know, when you talk about spirits always revealing these higher truths to you, like he met Wordsworth and Carlyle, and um, the other day I saw RuPaul of RuPaul's Drag Show. She's 62 years old, bald, very thin. Um, and the interview, because I think it's the 20th anniversary of the RuPaul drag show, where she says the fine art of, of drag. It's To her, it's an art form. And she said, and when I was a little boy, I used to put on my mother's high heels and her things, and my mother always celebrated my diversity, my uniqueness. And so he says, now when I have to go out in front of a thousand people, I say to myself, you're going into mother's living room. And when you go into mother's living room, you can be authentic who you really are, because she always loved you, even in your strange, beautiful, unique sort of ways. And RuPaul says, when I see these young men come to me to want to express themselves, I say, you're stepping into mother's room while you're loved and you're seen and you're validated for who you are, not for who you want to be. And then they said, so what, what's your whole regimen? And RuPaul said, you know, I get up in the morning and at 62, I have to do some stretches because my body demands it. And then she says, I go into prayer. Now, this was revealing. And she says, and you know how I do that? She says, I go into source. 
and I say, I am one with source. And I let go of my ego. I said, okay, you sit over there. You're not in charge today. And I let source take me to my soul. And in that place, I realize I'm one with everything. And I thought, holy cow, RuPaul is saying in five minutes on a TV show what I try to preach every single Sunday. You step into source and you realize that you're one with everything. You're one with source and you're one with all because it's all the one. Yeah, receive your inspiration wherever you get it. So that last little titch on Emerson, he says, talent alone isn't enough. Mere talent is external. It copies existing forms of talent and strives for society's praise. But your genius comes from within your soul and it expresses itself for its own sake. So what if this higher order of realization were on the brink of the emergence of the soul on planet Earth? So next Sunday, being that it's Christmas, I thought we would um, give birth to the universal Christ together. And then uh, the, the Saturday after that, we have the World Peace Meditation here at 6 a.m. And we could pray for world peace. And it's very interesting. Thomas Hubble, he's a mystic from Israel. And he was asked in an interview. Someone shared this with me yesterday. He was asked in this interview. I think he's, he's Jewish. How do we pray? And very much like RuPaul, Thomas Hubble said, you open your heart to all creation and you put it in your heart because it's all the one life, God's life. And he says, and when you put everything in your heart, then everything becomes sacred. And he says, that is a prayer. Well, isn't that kind of special? You don't play a Santa in the sky for somebody. You just open your heart and you take him into your heart, the heart of the one that knows no other. You know, you hear me say that phrase all the time, the heart of the one that knows no other. So then everyone becomes sacred. I had, uh, besides Judy and Hank this morning, I came to the church and there was a little note in the door about this young man who's in prison and he has a big dog and the dog has no home. And then I call his mother in Tennessee and she's got a dog that's nine years old that they're going to have to take to the pound because the husband's allergic to it. And I found my heart feeling compassion for these animals that I've never even met. Well, what if that's what prayer is all about? We get to take in and, and then transmute it in the heart of the one that knows divine grace is everywhere. And perhaps the very thing that we think is the obstacle is the doorway, is the opportunity for our revolution, our evolution, our healing. That's a whole different way of looking at life, isn't it? This too is good. This too is for God. And I demand to see your blessing, the blessing in it. So I was up all night with these dreams and things and seven principles. So at the end of his life, Emerson, was he lived to be 78. Um, he was out speaking his truth to the whole world. But the one place he didn't go was the South because he wasn't welcome down here. Isn't that funny? Because he was preaching essentially that we have to embrace all as equal. And if we don't, we're not in principle with the one life. And, uh, and he became such a naturalist that he took a journey in the 1870s out to California where he met a young photographer named John Muir. And John Muir said, when I looked into his eyes, I saw the eyes of the most peaceful, expansive soul that I've ever met. And so, so much of what we do, we interconnect with each other and we affect one another. And they're reaching out for us so that we can have a more transcendent reality that's wanting to give birth. So the very um, last idea that I got from Emerson's seven steps, the seven steps he had was, the first one, oh, that's not the seven steps. Oh, the seven principles. We just had the class. You know what? 
It's in the very first page of the book. It's so simple. The seven principles. Can't even find them. Well, isn't that nice? Because the seven principles basically are that we're universal beings, trust in the universe. And oversoul. Look for God within, identify with the infinite, know that nothing outside of you can harm you because you're the creator of your own reality. And so those principles that awoke from his first journal entry became the guiding principles for his life. So what if we could dare to look within and look without and hear the guiding principles from others, but also hear them awakening within ourselves? To thine own self be true, and it was follow the night, the day. And then you have this integrity of living from principle and not from precedent. Wow. Someone asked me when I was brand new minister here, do you do communion on Sunday? I said, well, if you want to take communion, I'll hand you a flower and say, I'm one with the flower and we can eat it together. But aside from that, if you want to drink the blood and the flesh, there are many places you can do that. And you know, it's so funny, in Emerson's very last sermon, in the first church in Boston, after he gave his letter of resignation, his last sermon is called The Last Supper. And it was around Easter time. And he said, you know, Jesus would never have asked you to drink his blood and eat his flesh. He was a nice Jewish boy. He was practicing Passover. And if you've ever had a Passover dinner, they pass around the wine and we'll all sip the wine and then we'll all pass the bread and we each take a piece of the bread off. And that's a Passover dinner. He didn't say, this is me. No, this was a Passover tradition that he was teaching. So let those of you out there who can hear, hear. But he says, I'm out of here because I can't do this way of church that you asked me to do. So he, he gave up the, the certainty of the past, and then you hear his wisdom. He says, um, we all seek to be certain, but only to the degree that we are uncertain is there any hope for us. So he's asking us to be on the brink of a new life, of a new revelation, dare to evolve into a higher order of being. That was his invitation almost 200 years ago. And we're still, I mean, at, at 74, I need, that, I need that catalyst within my soul. This is not about precedent. There's a precedent in religious science churches that has to always be on fire. And I would say to them, if they ever asked me to speak again, let go of your God of tradition and your God of the intellect, science of mind, and let your soul be set on fire with a truth that is eternal and that is always raging within the individual and access that, ignite it within each other. You all ignite it within me, you know? So I'm going to uh, ask my beloved Raul to go back to the bell and we have a beautiful party this afternoon at 1.30 at Mary and Terry's house. There's instructions out there if you choose to be with your spiritual family. And um, we do have the World Peace Meditation next Saturday at 6 a.m. I'll be here. It's going to be really cold that morning, so bundle up. And church service will be on Sunday. I should have probably done a candlelight service Saturday night, as someone reminded me yesterday, but I didn't do that. So we will show up, those of you who want to be a part of this, and uh, we'll give birth to the universal Christ. Maybe I'll meet Ari's new friend. I'm looking forward to it. Divine love brings together and maintains together those who belong together. So if you're still in this room with me, I guess it's divine love that brought you here. Isn't that a sweet to know? Beloved Raul. Ah, there's that bell again. It's called the mindfulness bell for a reason. We consciously breathe into that mind, but not the local mind. We breathe into that infinite mind. And as John O'Donohue would say, we live in the divine imagination. So invite the divine imagination in you to hmm, conjure up a realization of oneness, what it would look like if we all loved one another, if we cared for one another. Huh. 
and just rest in that felt awareness, knowing that we are called to serve, to serve the one, the one in ourselves and the one in the world, it's all the same one. And whatever invites that awakening, in Emerson's case, it was the death of his young wife, and then shortly after that, the death of his young son, to which he commented, what I've learned about death is how shallow it is because their spirits are still with me. And so when we can take life's challenges and turn them into beautiful gifts of awareness, well, then we become the voice Ah, hmm. the voice of spirit waking up on planet Earth. In our revealing services, I hear the voice of spirit coming from the many as the one through the many again and again and again, meeting our challenges in a grateful sort of way, knowing that they're all here to assist us in this growth experience called life. And sometimes there's an ow in the growth because it requires that we let go of a false sense of security that may be holding us back into a certainty that isn't certain anymore. And so as we open to uncertainty, we also open to an emerging revelation from within, as did Emerson, as did Thomas Merton, as did Parker Palmer. There is that which is within all of us that is waking up. And so a simple yes, a thousand times yes, even as painful as it may be, sets us free into a discovery process that's always fresh and alive and so very real. Uh, I hear the Bible that says, this is the day the Lord has made, so rejoice and be glad in it. And so we wake up to another day of opportunity, another day of insight, another day of compassion, another day of kindness, another day of curiosity. What is the beloved going to show me today? How is my heart going to be broken open again today? I'm an empath and feel the suffering of others. And so uh, as my heart breaks open and I invite that suffering in, I take refuge in the arms of a friend, in the smile of a friend, in the snort of a pug. I know that it's all here for me to remind me that we're loved. We're so loved. Uh, and so we pause, we open, we keep reaching out to the beloved. And we know that the beloved reaches out to us in ways. Sometimes it's a song that we hear over the radio. I was in South America, I was lost in a rainforest in the middle of nowhere, in a truck sitting in the front seat. And all of a sudden I hear James Taylor singing, you've got a friend. Tears came down my eyes. It's 1975. You just call out my name and you know wherever I am, I'll come running. And I think it was that moment that I chose to leave South America and fly back to New York. And so we see the synchronicities. We see the serendipity of life, how it gives us these messages when we need them. Sometimes they break our heart open, but sometimes an open heart becomes a receptive heart. And so we give thanks for the mystery of this great love affair we're having with the universe. Ah, and so we find that place of repose, the infinite presence that lies stretched in smiling repose, he said. He also admonished that it's only our finite self that wails and suffers. 
And so he's reminding us, like RuPaul did, that we have two aspects of ourselves. We have the source, peaceful, loving, creative, spontaneous, authentic. And then we have an egoic self who wants to please, who's insecure, who's seeking validation outside ourselves. And we're stepping out of that egoic, conditional self into this unconditional love and acceptance so that we can merge with that. And when we look out from our own eyes, we see the same unconditional love and acceptance for all creation. Parker Palmer arrived at that place where he celebrated diversity. Emerson arrived at that place where he recognized that diversity is necessary. And we are arriving in a principle of divine love that only sees itself everywhere revealed. And we are ready to put on that awareness and look through those eyes and celebrate each other as one life. So I invite you to put your right hand over your heart to feel that sacred space wherein God lies. And let's say to that space within and all around, I honor you. I respect you. I love you. You are the deepest aspect of the one life. Revealing herself eternally anew within all creation. And we witness you. We stand in awe of you. And we ask that you teach us and show us the way. As we move forward in faith and trust. In peace and hope. Cheerful expectancy. Uh, thank you, beloved. Thank you, beloved. Thank you, beloved. This life belongs to you. Do with it as you will. We smile. It is done. And so it is. listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.cslhuntsville.org.